It's the 28th of March, 2015, and this is episode 199. This show is intended for informational and educational purposes only. What cryptocurrency enables is new, empowering, and exciting, but we're not experts. Just obsessed companions walking the road towards a more peer-to-peer future. Welcome to Let's Talk Bitcoin, a twice-weekly show about the ideas, people, and projects building the new economy and the future of money. On today's show, I'm joined by Stephanie and Andreas for a wide-ranging conversation circling the topic of trust. Trust gained, trust lost, and trust that should never have been given. Enjoy the show. This past week, there were a couple of high-profile thefts of Bitcoins that might be affecting the Bitcoin world in different ways. And these are not in any way connected, as far as I know, except that they happened in the same week. They're actually pretty different. So I figured we could talk about both of them and maybe some lessons that we can learn from both. The first is Coinapult. They apparently had their hot wallet compromised. They announced this on their Twitter account and said customers should not send Bitcoin to any existing Coinapult addresses starting immediately. This was on March 17th, St. Patty's Day. They lost apparently 150 Bitcoins. The dollar value of that would be, I don't know. (laughs) Let me get out my calculator. $39,000 is what I think it comes to. And my calculator is sort of a rough guesstimate. Yeah, you know, it's, it's not that much, relatively speaking, you know, when you're normally talking about Bitcoin thefts that happen in, you know, the thousands of Bitcoin range, but it is still a chunk of money. Well, the thing is, the type of service that Coinapult is, Coinapult was created way back in the day, I think in 2011 or maybe even 2010 by Eric Voorhees. And the point was to be able to send Bitcoins through SMS messages. So from one phone number to another, they moved to Panama and they they started doing other services like the locks feature, which we talked to Justin and Ira from Coinapult about that on the show several months ago, where you could lock in the value of your Bitcoin wallet. And it was basically a, a variable balance Bitcoin wallet. So they were starting to do some services like that. But for the most part, I always thought of Coinapult as a company that was really like, it's kind of like a nonprofit company. Like they even said the mission of Coinapult when it began was to make it easier for people to send Bitcoins and and make it more user friendly and bring Bitcoin to people who didn't have smartphone wallets or didn't want to mess with them. And so for them to get compromised, I don't know who did the compromise. They say they're investigating it. It's not really clear the details on that yet. But for a company like that, that doesn't really have the big business model, doesn't have a ton of funding, probably a hack of 150 Bitcoins in their hot wallet could be a big deal. I think especially especially offering products like the locks, right? Because with the locks, they're responsible for this variable amount of Bitcoin that essentially floats. So you could say, I want to have my Bitcoin denominated in gold, essentially, or my gold denominated in Bitcoin. So as the price of Bitcoin and gold varies, the amount of Bitcoin you have access to you know, would go up or down depending on how that price kind of plays out. They had actually just announced this partnership with Coinbase. Maybe they were setting up to sort of, I don't know, look more secure or do more KYC type stuff. I can only guess about what that was about. But this doesn't exactly inspire trust in a service that's going to be storing variable balance Bitcoin wallets or just a service that's going to be storing Bitcoin sent via SMS, which doesn't seem particularly secure. One thing I always wondered about Coinapult was there were so many people back in the day, like I remember going to Porkfest in probably like 2011 or maybe 2012, when Bitcoin was still pretty new to most people, and they were using Coinapult to send Bitcoins via text message to each other. And some of the payments were got to be like 10 Bitcoins, six Bitcoins at the time. How many people like never claimed those Bitcoins and they're just sitting around in Coinapult's wallets and will they ever claim them five years, four years later? (laughs) <laughs> I don't know. So I always wondered, like, what was the rate of attrition with Coinapult? What was the rate of people actually claiming Bitcoins that were sent to their phones? And people lose their phones. People never receive text messages. You know how it goes. I wonder how much they were sitting on and what the status of that money was. Did they consider it theirs after a couple of years of nobody claiming it? Or you know, I they- would almost take this from the opposite direction, Stephanie. We don't really have the ability to make a judgment based on the information that we have. If this was a good scenario or a bad scenario. Clearly, it would be better if nobody stole any money from them. But if this represents a very, very small percentage of the overall funds that Coinapult is working with, the amount of money that we're talking about here, $39,000, 
is not that much money. That could represent, you know, a couple of, you know, like a week or even days worth of how much demand their customers actually have. You have a more romantic notion of the company, I think, than I do. For sure. I admit that I do. <laughs> you know, when we talked to them, they said that, you know, their intention was to make money. They're providing a service and they're, you know, capitalistic guys. It's not like they're like, oh, profit's evil. They're trying to, you know, make money. So if they have, you know, business relationships, that amount of money could be quite small. We really just don't know. So I think that's kind of the interesting question here is that until we find out how this actually impacts Coin and Pulp, we don't really know if this was their system being compromised, but being compromised in as minimal a way as is possible without compromising the accessibility of the overall system. Because it's not like you can have everything in a cold wallet, because then when your customers do want something, there's this whole rigmarole process you have to go through. And the other part that's interesting about Coinapult to me, specifically compared to the Coinbase thing, is that in dealing with Coinbase, you will notice, and I certainly have noticed, that every once in a while, they make a mistake. Sometimes that mistake is like, oh, you sold Bitcoin and we sent twice as many dollars to your bank account. Or you sent Bitcoin to, to somebody, but the transaction didn't go through in our internal system. There's all this reversibility built into what Coinbase has done. Coinbase has taken Bitcoin and created a service that replicates a lot of the permission-based spending that we have in the conventional banking system, where it's not about, do you have the private key and thus the authorization to be able to spend this? It's about, are you actually the person with the identity who is able to spend this? And if you're not, we can reverse it at, up to a certain point. You know, and again, they use the banking system for this. Coinapult doesn't seem to do anything like that. They seem to be very Bitcoin ethos, very, once you send it, it's sent. So I would not necessarily assume that they're holding on to a ton of Bitcoin that early customers sent to other customers. And in fact, didn't they have a refund mechanism at one point on that service where like if someone didn't pick it up in a certain amount of time, it would get refunded to the person that sent it? I thought that they did that, but I could be wrong. Yeah, now that you're saying it, it rings a bell. That was one thing that happened this week, maybe a blip on the radar. But the other thing that everybody seems to be talking about now is this evolution marketplace. I didn't even know that this existed <laughs> until I heard this news, but this was a drug marketplace, like a, you know, like a dark web kind of Silk Road type thing where people were trading stuff on anonymizing services. They were just a scam and they just walked away with about 130,000 bitcoins, which was $12 million. There was some kind of a Reddit post, somebody claiming to be one of the administrators had uh, shut down the market, escaped with users' Bitcoin funds stored in the market's, quote, escrow vaults. And someone named NSW Great posted on Reddit, I have admin access to see parts of the back end. The admins are preparing to exit scam with all the funds. Not a single withdrawal has gone through in almost a week. Every Silk Road clone has folded in some way, even some of them with names like the Sheep Marketplace and that kind of thing. They've all collapsed. I don't really understand why people keep trying them, except that they're desperate to do this kind of commerce that they can't do in the real world. Well, the interesting thing about this is that as you have black markets, what black markets do is that they remove all possibility for legal recourse in the case that customers get scammed. So the worst case scenario in a black market like the drug market is that it creates an environment where violence is a lot easier to get away with because the customers cannot really, you know, go to the cops and say, oh, I got robbed by my drug dealer and <laughs> that doesn't work. By creating black markets through prohibition, that increases the level of violence, it increases the level of crime, it creates an area outside of the legal system by definition, an area that doesn't go away because people who need access to those types of markets will continue to find ways to to do those transactions and so it breeds violence. Now, the advantage of online markets as I said many times is that you can't get stabbed over TCP/IP. So at least the the possibility of violence is greatly reduced. But it but, makes theft a lot easier. But exactly, you're in a lawless environment so getting robbed or mugged or having all of the customer's money disappear is a lot easier. The real question is why haven't we seen services like that emerge that offer greater customer security, not through legal solutions, but through technology solutions. So multi-signature escrow services, for example, customer control of keys, things like that. Essentially, more decentralized marketplaces that would offer 
customers more security. And of course, you know, why go to the trouble of building all of those things if your customers are desperate for anything and will basically go with a service that's easy to rob or run away with the money? There's almost like a trust and competency sort of uh, opposite ends of the spectrum that go on here where because the only type of business you could possibly build in an illegal market environment is an illegal business, there's not really the the due diligence requirement that there might be if you were competing in a space that didn't necessarily have those limitations. But so long as those limitations exist, it really causes this problem. Oh, you mean like Coinapult? Because that's really the, the question here is why did they have a single signature hot wallet in 2015? Yeah, that's a great question. I wonder about that too. Stephanie, you said, uh, what are the lessons to be learned? Unfortunately, at this point, there are no lessons to be learned because these are not really lessons. At this point, we've said them so many times, they should be table stakes. Custodial hot wallet accounts with single signature control are dangerous. They're dangerous for internal embezzlement. They're dangerous for theft. They're dangerous for hacking attacks. The standards should be higher at this point. Multisig has now been out for a year and a half in production terms. There's really no excuse if you have to have a hot wallet, and some services do have to have a hot wallet because they're designed in a centralized fashion, they have to use a hot wallet to serve their customers, then why would it not be a multi-party, multi-signature control system where you diffuse that responsibility, that power, and make it harder to hack? And I wonder how hard exactly it was to hack Coinapult's hot wallet because 150 bitcoins is not that much in terms of like a big prize, right? I mean, it must have been worth breaking into or who knows what happened, but maybe it was like relatively easy to get to. And that's concerning. Well, the statistic I read recently is that since 2011, the rate of theft in Bitcoin is on average 18,000 Bitcoins per month being stolen from hot wallets. Wow. Now, I'm assuming that that being an average is dramatically skewed by three or four major events like uh, Bitcoinica, Pirated 40, MT Gox, etc., rather than you know consistently closer to the average. The median, in other words, is, is probably a lot lower. But still, what it reveals is that we're pioneering a new technology here. This new technology offers an alternative to traditional banking systems, but if you use it to go and replicate traditional banking systems with custodial centralized control, then not only does it have all of the vulnerabilities of a traditional banking system, it augments those because it is easily stealable digital money that it is then very easy to launder and disappear on the ledger. Not only is it easy to get to the money, it's easy to take the money, and it's very easy then to fence and disappear the money. That makes it far more dangerous than traditional banking. So Bitcoin has this built-in dichotomy. On the one hand, it's safer than traditional banking if you do it right. On the other hand, it's much worse than traditional banking in terms of security if you try to emulate centralized traditional banking structures. And there are no do-overs. There are no do-overs, yeah. So I just took a look at the estimated daily transaction volume of Bitcoin in USD, and it was about $61 million today. And so I just did a rough calculation based on the price of Bitcoin, dividing it by 260. And so that's about eh, 250,000 Bitcoins being traded daily. So if somebody steals 130,000 Bitcoins, that's like half of the daily volume for today. If there's that much theft going on, where do all these Bitcoins go? I mean, there's been so many high profile thefts, and they've been so carefully tracked and monitored and surveilled. It's just frustrating that it seems to be so easy to surveil the blockchain for these companies like Chainalysis and these these kind of things. But people can't figure out where stolen Bitcoins are going and how they're getting sold, if at all. And what happens to these stolen Bitcoins? I think in reality, it's not easy to surveil the, the blockchain if what you're trying to surveil is trying to hide. It's easy if what you're surveilling is not trying to hide. Your average user who is not sophisticated enough and using wallets that do not take privacy precautions can be easily surveilled. But the truth is, do you know where that money has gone, Stephanie? I'd like it, to know. It's in your Bitcoin wallet and my Bitcoin wallet. 
and Adam's Bitcoin wallet and all of the rest of our Bitcoin wallets, it's basically being diffused back into the economy. <laughs> That's where that Bitcoin is gone. It's not like it, it's taken from one company and then it's buried in some vault to be resurrected later. No, the, the, the people who have done these activities probably spent a lot of it before Bitcoin was worth much and then continued to spend it. And then it gets spent and merchants get it and merchants sell it on exchanges and exchanges sell it to you. And, you know, I get paid to go to a conference, for example, and the conference organizer through no knowledge of their own is, is paying me in Bitcoin that had once touched bad hands. Hands of Mark Carpellis. The hands of Mark <laughs> Carpellis. It's the same with US dollars, right? Uh, you know, most every dollar bill that's in your pocket is tainted with cocaine. And that's because at some point somebody snorted cocaine through that dollar bill. And, and, and the funny thing about that is that that's not a bug. That's a feature of a currency. It's called fungibility. Each currency unit is completely interchangeable and more or less indistinguishable from every other currency bill and has equal value under the law. And, and that's a desired feature because without it, a currency doesn't work very well as a means of exchange. Otherwise, you need to essentially look at and value each piece of currency different. Like if you're, this is what happens with coins. Coins have a face value, but they also have a numismatic value, you know, an age value over time. And so you can't just use those coins anymore as money because the face value doesn't actually reflect the value of it. And you need an expert to look at each one individually to value them, which makes it not good money. And instead, it turns it into, I don't even know what it turns it into, but it's something besides money. At well, that it's, it's worse than that, Adam, because what happens is that the first inclination is misguided but well-meaning attempt to somehow prevent theft or make it harder to fence money by basically making whitelists or blacklists. Uh, usually blacklist, and say, okay, these coins that were stolen, let's track their serial numbers, and, and then if somebody shows up with this money, we basically try to track the origin, and we don't accept it as real. Now, uh, this has been adjudicated with traditional money, and some of the case law goes back to the 16th century. Specifically, the courts have found that you can't do that, that it's not lawful to do that, because if you blacklist a specific serial number, for example, on a dollar bill, what you're doing is you're putting a burden on every user of that currency to check every bill against this blacklist. And that can lead to all kinds of abuse because what it does is it shifts the power of control of the currency from the user to the maintainer of the blacklist. So what happens when WikiLeaks funds are put on that blacklist so that WikiLeaks can't spend donations received by their users? You go right back to the same problems we have with other money systems, especially digital payment systems, where you can apply these kinds of arbitrary rules. It probably creates a parallel economy for the blacklisted coins. Right. And it doesn't work because you can mix them so effectively and the burden it puts on users means that you will basically funnel these coins into areas where the users don't have an opportunity to check. So for example, when you're doing off-blockchain transactions, that's when these ones are going to show up or when you're doing transactions where you're not online at the time. That's when these coins are going to show up because you haven't got the latest copy of the blacklist. It leads to all kinds of abuse. So while it's well-meaning, in the end, it doesn't really matter where those coins went. The important event is the fact that a theft happened and we need to implement better security practices to make it harder for these things to happen. The money goes right back into the economy and it just circles around. Let me get a little bit off into the weeds with you on this, uh, Andreas. Looking at a dollar bill, even as the world reserve currency, we have serial numbers on the various dollars. So if the possibility to use it doesn't make sense, right? If it doesn't make sense to actually require people to look at those things, and it's since these are physical, you know, dollars that actually exist in the real world, there's not a way that you can like poll and, you know, make sure that there aren't duplicates out there. Is there anything besides security theater? Like, are there any reasons besides security theater for putting something like that on a bill? Oh, absolutely. That's the difference between what we would consider prior restraint on the use of that money versus being able to trace the origins of that money. So, for example, let's say you have a kidnapping and you mark the bills or you take down the serial numbers. And then if you catch someone who has all of those bills shortly after the crime has been committed, then you can create a forensic trail that leads to that money and you've basically got dirty hands. So it lets you create evidence out of it as opposed to 
trying to maintain a blacklist. The blacklist is the problem, not the serial number. Exactly. The blacklist is not just a, a problem. It's explicitly forbidden by law in all national currencies. So you cannot, as a recipient of the money, say, I'll take this dollar, but not that dollar. Or I'll accept all dollars that start with this number and not that number. You can't do that. By law, every single one of these bills is valid legal tender for all debts, private and public, right? And they're all equally interchangeable because it removes that burden. And the the difference is prior restraints. Essentially, a blacklist imposes a restraint on the user of that currency prior to proof that anything criminal has been committed by that specific user. And, and that's not allowed in the legal system. And it destroys the value of the currency because it creates this enormous administrative burden on everyone. And the value of the currency is destroyed because then you don't know if what you've received is actually valuable. And the whole point of a currency is that you should be able to verify. And as long as it's authentic, it doesn't matter who used it before you. History of the currency only matters if you're the first recipient in the case of a crime. It doesn't matter if you receive it secondhand, as long as it's not forged. Here's another interesting one for you. In the European Union, euros are printed by the member countries, right? And they're printed with different faces on them. So for example, euros printed in Greece, first of all, have the English language Euro on one side, I think they have French on the other, and they have Greek in one corner. So we'll say 10 euros on the top, and then in the other corner we'll say 10 euro, 10 euro, right? Which is the Greek version of that. And the French notes have it in French, and the Spanish notes have it in Spanish. What's even more interesting is the serial numbers of all notes printed by the National Bank of Greece start with Y. Now, in Germany today, it's actually difficult to trade those. So they already have a fungibility problem. People will not accept Greek origin euro notes because they're worried that if something happens in the euro exits, these may not be honored by other banks in the euro area. So they've already created a fragmented currency system where they've at least damaged the uh, fungibility function of that money. So in reality, it sounds like there are actually a lot of parallel and like linked, very tightly linked versions of the euro, but that they are all actually their own kind of version, because otherwise you wouldn't have any distinction, because like you said, that creates this opportunity for people to treat them differently, as opposed to if they were all just exactly the same and you couldn't tell the difference, then you wouldn't be able to, you wouldn't be able to make these distinctions. Yes, out of the narrow and short-sighted nationalistic interests of having your own language rather than agreeing to representing, you know, some of the dominant languages in Europe. Certainly the French wouldn't like it if if the euro only had English on it. The Germans wouldn't like it if it had French on it and so on and so forth because it's not a united continent but a loose federation of 10 or 15 different languages which have their own typescripts as well. The end result is that everybody wanted their own. And what they got now is something that is no longer really a fungible currency. Today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin is brought to you by the Tokenly Project, FoldingCoin.net, and smvoice.info. Today's magic word is fiat. That's F-I-A-T. Fiat. You've got until the 4th of April to visit letstalkbitcoin.com and the Let's Talk Bitcoin iOS app to enter it for your share of the listener rewards. Black markets and quasi-illegal markets or unregulated markets in Bitcoin and cryptocurrency have been some of kind of the early driving forces behind a lot of a lot of what happens. Because there's this interesting thing where 
If you are a user that is not being served by existing markets, and you actually want, you know, you want to be served by markets, then your incentive and willingness to go out and find solutions that are outside of the norm, like going to the dark web or using Tor or something like that, suddenly becomes much less of a barrier if it actually can solve your problem. Because as we talked about earlier, there's this problem of violence surrounding real life stuff that is outside of the legal system. All of the projects that have sort of imploded and walked away with money have been companies, not necessarily legal companies, but like somebody owns the website or a group of admins own the website and they have the ability to do this. And because of the kind of anonymous nature of illegal markets, right, the people operating the markets aren't exactly posting their contact information where people can get in touch with them if something goes wrong, you have this opportunity for lying by the people who are by nature of running the platform imbued with the trust of the platform and the users operating on the platform. A little bit later today, we're talking with the team behind Open Bazaar, and that is a really interesting project to me because it comes at this issue of providing marketplaces without requiring a central trusted party and without requiring an operator of the platform who is trusted. I'm curious, how many more failures do you think that we will see in this you know, quasi gray market or black market space? where the places just you know, walk off with the money, whether it's through a, quote, hack or just walking away with the money, before we really see movement to completely decentralized platforms like OpenBazaar or things like it that really tries to solve this problem. I mean, it seems like if we're going to have it happen in an area, this is the area that is having the most concentrated punishment for not having these types of structures in place. I think it's a matter of relative incentives, right? Because what are these markets solving today? They're solving the you do not get stabbed over TCPIP problem. And that's a pretty big problem. It's a problem that creates much more demand from these markets than you would otherwise expect. So the ability to trade in these goods with a much reduced chance of violence is a pretty big incentive. You combine that with the incorrectly assumed anonymity. People assume that they are anonymous somehow on the Bitcoin network, which we've seen again and again is obviously not true. These are pretty big incentives. The demand is already there. It's been there for, you know, 150,000 years. It's been there ever since Prohibition. Well, yeah, I was going to say since Prohibition came about, but yeah, before that too. <sighs> yeah, I'm pretty sure it's been there even longer than that, sure. At some point, there was a priest that didn't allow anybody else to chew on the on the chocolate cocoa leaves or <laughs> something like that, <laughs> or to eat from the magic squirrel. There's always some level of that kind of sequestration in, in society of, of various resources. But yeah, I mean, dark markets have existed since markets have existed. There is demand. And so the question is, when does it become so onerous in terms of theft that that makes even the violence not seem like a good trade-off? And the answer is never. The problem is the incentives of a low-violence environment for trading are so good that people will tolerate levels of theft. And they'll probably find workarounds, such as not keeping large amounts on these services for very long, so limiting their time exposure Hoping they don't get hurt yes. yeah, in just a short period of time. Andreas, you said dark markets have existed as long as markets have existed. I would say dark markets have existed as long as regulated markets have existed. And that's, if we really step back, that's the kernel of the issue here, right? Is that we have this prohibition that's making certain types of trade illegal. And so what happens with any prohibition, that kind of trade goes underground. People don't stop doing it. They just try to find ways to do it that they can get away with and hopefully not get hurt in the process. But as you said, that can end up being pretty dangerous. Right. You don't have a dark market until someone starts painting the other markets white or right. light or whatever you want to call them, right? <laughs> There's probably the racial pun is uh, quite intended there because it's usually tied to that too. Do you think there are people who listen to our show that still believe that like, for instance, marijuana prohibition is a good thing. It saves lives. It prevents stone driving or, or whatever. I mean, I bet there are some that are out there. That would provide a better explanation for the death threats I receive than that they're just randomly sociopathic crazies, which is a bit more disturbing as an answer. I'd rather they disagree with me about something. Yeah, at least then they'd have a reason. Well, sorry to hear that, but 
I think there actually are people out there who believe that these regulations are a good thing and they don't have any perverse unintended consequences. And that's just simply not true. All you have Or to they do, think that it's worth it. I mean, that that's the other kind of... Uh, yeah, that's you know, another thing to be questioned. Yeah, you know, I mean, the, the value proposition behind this stuff really isn't apparent to you until it becomes apparent to you. And then, you know, again, it's just hard to conceptualize something that you haven't experienced or hard to conceptualize something that you don't have enough experience with to really have an educated opinion about. Then it's more about, okay, since I don't have an educated opinion about this, who do I trust? Who do I, you know, relate to? And then I can just borrow their opinion or that can help me form my opinion. It requires a level of rank hypocrisy and a lack of self-awareness to be for these kinds of things, which unfortunately is extremely widespread and part of our culture. We're all taught how to make these uh, ridiculously hypocritical early judgments from very early on in our lives, right? So it's like, well, of course that substance is prohibited. You know, it's so dangerous for society. Now take your damn hands off my cigarettes and stop taxing them. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, I mean, I trust Rush Limbaugh to give me my opinion about drugs being prohibited. Oh, wait, didn't he abuse prescription narcotics? <laughs> for years on the radio while simultaneously beating the war drums of, for the war on drugs. I mean, yeah, hypocrisy I, to the yeah. max. I mean, this, this conversation makes me so angry. I need to pour myself a drink right now. <laughs> <laughs> Most people have some kind of drug that they use on a regular basis, whether it's alcohol, cigarettes, caffeine. Those are all drugs under the traditional definition of drug, a substance that affects the human body. Oh, actually, and under, it's just that those are socially acceptable addictions. They're socially acceptable now. Caffeine right. was banned for 140 years in the Netherlands, which is longer than the time that either alcohol or marijuana have been banned in the US. So if you looked at it purely from a point of few of which one was illegal for longer than coffee's one of them. It's right up there at the top of the list. The other side of things that are obviously so bad for society that they're not allowed are things that are obviously so good for society that we're all forced to use them. Which of course is funny because if they're really so good, then why are why you know why does there need to be a rule saying like everybody insurance. has to use it? Well like health insurance or seatbelts, you know, like the US dollar, for example. Now, that's something that's really good for society. <laughs> it depends on where you're talking about in history. It's just like everything else. It's like, if you use it in moderation, then it can probably serve the purpose that you're looking for it to serve. But if you abuse it in whatever capacity that is, then it stops at a certain point serving what, you're, what it you know, usefully should do for you, and instead just becomes an increasing dependency that you have. This is a sort of terrible pivot, but we've been talking about now for the last almost two years about how it looks like the dollar is not necessarily going to be the dominant currency forever. You know, I've talked about this in the past. If you look at a chart of the world reserve currencies, which is to say the national money that the rest of the world chooses to use as the best money to accomplish interstate trading, right? So if you're France and you want to, you know, do business with China, then you're going to use the dollar because historically, You've been able to buy oil with it. And there are some other deals that make it so the dollar is really has become a very integral part of the um, global financial system. A big part of that is this organization called SWIFT, which essentially is the wire transfer organization for countries all over the world. And I think that they have something like 140 member nations. So when you send a wire transfer to someone else in another country, or even you know when a wire gets sent within another country like France to France, that is following this. That's using the SWIFT protocol basically for making these types of transfers between different types of banks. For a long time, SWIFT, which the U.S. dominates and that uses the U.S. dollar as their token of the network, has been pretty much the only option for countries that want to do business with the rest of the world to participate in. And in the last maybe ten years. Well, I've been paying attention, and certainly this might have been happening before. We have used the dollar essentially as a weapon, and the SWIFT organization essentially as a weapon to try and get um, other countries to come on board with the things that we want them to do. From recent memory, Iran was kicked out of uh, SWIFT, and that led to them eventually having hyperinflation within their currency, and they had to, you know, there were major, major problems because essentially what SWIFT said was 
either you are in Swift and able to do business with everybody or you're out of Swift and you have to come up with entirely new systems or entirely new procedures to be able to engage with each person on their own since you cannot use this protocol. So we've not only done that to Iran, but recently we tried to do it to Russia. We've been applying pressure via sanctions to Russia. Most recently tried to get- I don't know about get... you, Adam, but I haven't done anything to Russia. Who's this well, we? I... This is the we. This is the thing where we don't have to make the choice on this. The choice of what our token is, the dollar, has been made for us. We're required to use it if we run any businesses as legal currency, to accept it for all debts and payments, and we have to use it to pay our taxes, which we're required to pay. So I know, I'm you know, just saying, this, let's be clear about who is actually doing these actions, which is the, you know, the government people, the, the central banks, the financial bureaucrats. It's not you and leaders. me. That's true. You're then right. They're not you're, my leaders. <laughs> well, I, I understand that. But they're the people who stand up and say, we are leading. This is, you know, we are acting on the behalf yeah, of, so of the I people. Yeah, so I recognize <laughs> their legitimacy. So okay. Stephanie just stood up and denounced them. There you go. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, there you go. Then uh, we does I'm not, not in include this Stephanie. <laughs> I, I don't know. Again, like, I, I think that just because our leaders are doing terrible things and just because really, really bad short-sighted decisions are being made, doesn't necessarily mean that we are off the hook as participants within this system. We use dollars. It's the way it is. And again, like in an environment where there are only bad choices, a bad choice is an, is an option that you might be willing to accept because, hey, you've got no other choice but that. So I mean, that again, that's where Bitcoin and cryptocurrency and this unstoppable competition in money is so interesting to me because it makes it so that we actually do have options compared to just using the dollar, which, you know, 10 years ago, if we were having this conversation, what would it be? We'd be talking about like, yeah, make sure you have silver. You know, I mean, it's which a lot of people did do. I, it never right. really caught on to the level that Bitcoin caught on. But within certain communities, sure. And that I think is key is that if you're talking about any sort of actual physical you know, good that has real value, that no matter how many dollars are out there, there's going to be a somewhat fair value relative to the amount of dollars that are out there for that good, because it's an actual real life good has more cost to create it than just plain old money does. The thing is, the US dollar being the world reserve currency creates a lot of benefits for the US. But are they really benefits? And, and this is a more kind of meta discussion, which is, does the US as a nation or a, as an economy benefit more from being the world's reserve currency through the petrodollar? then it suffers from that. What does the petrodollar allow the US to do? It allows us to run current account deficits and issue treasury notes at a rate much lower than would otherwise be imposed on treasury notes if countries didn't have to buy dollars just to be able to do international trade in oil. It artificially supports the value of the US dollar, making it a strong currency which means that it can't be deflated fast enough to eradicate the debt that we're accumulating. It's monopoly demand, right? Yes. That's the core problem, the problem slash advantage, I guess. Monopsony. Monopsony, sure, there you go. Yeah, in, in a normal world, you wouldn't have all of this global demand for the dollar unless the dollar was actually desirable to the point as a trading you know, unit that it justified that. But because of just like, Everybody picks, and then that's what it is. You know, that's what the system is designed for. It swings out of whack over time. Yes. And what does that do? It creates perverse incentives for maintaining petrodollar supremacy, which are then being run through this debt creation machine that has much more room to create debt than it would otherwise have. And where does that debt go? It goes mostly to funding a war machine that has to create dominance in the Middle East in order to sustain the oil extracting operations there, as well as maintain presence in any country that has any form of strategic uh, oil interest or against any country that has a strategic oil interest, which means that then we have to sustain 720 bases around the world and troops and armaments and you know globally dominant defense industry. And so essentially what we're doing is we're creating debt that's cheaper than it should be to take that debt and turn around and funnel it straight into the maw of the war machine in order to secure the ability to create debt that feeds the war machine that feeds the debt. Oh, what a twisted web we weave. You know, Adam, you said everybody picks and then that's the reserve currency, but I did everybody pick or was it in kind of forced on... Well, yeah. In 1944... 
when uh, most of the world didn't have any options to pick, the victor uh-huh. picked, and everybody yeah, else went exactly. and joined that. I mean, essentially. Well, let's keep in mind it's not even the victor because you know technically the the U.S. is part of the allies, but it was the the one that didn't have the war happening in their backyard. It was the one that didn't have all of the economic damage and so could go into it providing services to everybody else who had to rebuild. So yeah, but totally, yeah. In nineteen forty four, Bretton Woods uh, encoded in this in. Yeah, listen, yeah, the, the victor you, they had to accept. <laughs> right. In in a world war, the only victor is the one whose entire country isn't destroyed. I think you can look at the situation and say that that's not true. You know, the victor is the one that comes out of it as the best looking dirty shirt, right? And then they're the one because hey, you gotta pick somebody. You get back to cryptocurrency because it presents opportunities so that you don't have to have everybody in the same currency in order to have compatibility between nations. Each currency or each token, you know, whatever you want to call it, so long as it operates using the same fundamental set of rules and then it can have its own monetary fundamentals, but they still, they're relatable, they're exchangeable, they're convertible in a way that, you know, modern currencies, we have to rely on banks, which are really just, you know, people carrying briefcases full of various types of cash to each other. You know, it's, I mean, like, it's, it's just, it's an automation of a system that to this point really was never able to be automated. Before. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the main, I think, geopolitical strategic advantages of a cryptocurrency. And one of the reasons why a cryptocurrency may emerge as a world reserve currency is this game theory situation that's created, whereby every country loses by adopting a cryptocurrency as a world reserve but no country wins. So in any other scenario, most countries would lose, but one country would win resoundingly by having their currency selected. And if you're all going to lose and someone's going to win, better that everybody loses control a bit and nobody wins. Neutrality becomes a safe haven. And now that we're living through the most extreme form of currency war that we've seen in a century, now that safe haven function becomes extremely interesting. The journey isn't really one of marketing. People talk about marketing Bitcoin and it really confuses me. It seems like the hurdle that remains is one of education almost entirely, that simply better options exist for things where there were no options before, where it just was like, it's just the way it is. You know, like if you're in Argentina, suddenly you have an opportunity now to sequester your value in a way that 10 years ago when they were going through currency issues, you didn't have that at all before. It was com- it's completely different. But people need to learn about that and actually understand the differences before they can actually make a difference. With that also comes the opportunity, the potential for volatility of Bitcoin to really affect you too. If you're someone who day to day, your finances really could be impacted by 10% change in the Bitcoin price, you know? Totally. But it's a compared to what situation? I mean, again, if you're talking about someone in Argentina, you're not talking in hypotheticals, really. I mean, they have lots of precedent where it's not a 10% reduction in value. You know, it's a slashing of value where they go down to a fraction of what they had before compared to everybody else. Sure. But Bitcoin can have that potential too. So I think what you said about education is really the key because as long as they understand those risks and maybe can take advantage of some ways to mitigate them, you know, like going to pull locks or something. The value of Bitcoin, as far as a safe haven is concerned, is really completely relative to how good of a safe haven your alternatives are. If your alternatives are lousy safe havens where volatility or sudden devaluations are expected, then, you know, again, the math is very different than if you're talking about a country with stable currency where it doesn't really make sense. You're really only looking at it, you know, as far as a safe haven, quote unquote, for either a catastrophe that suddenly takes down large portions of a system, or frankly, a speculative opportunity. At least Bitcoin doesn't have the political whims embedded in it. I think that that's really what makes it most attractive in a lot of these situations is that in areas where you could have humans screwing things up by making bad choices that benefit them but hurt other people, or benefit you know a sector that they're trying to revive but have unintended consequences in other areas, that's really where cryptocurrency, you know, it's like Andrea said, Everybody loses because nobody has the power to pick winners or losers, but everybody loses in a fair fashion, and they lose a lot less relative to if somebody did have that power and was able to put their fingers on the scales. So that, that's kind of the background about all this stuff. We just talked about a lot of background for why you know, the US dollar is dominant, why um, that's a good thing and why it's a bad thing and what the relative value is. 
But there's been an escalation recently. I mentioned that uh, Russia, the SWIFT was trying to, or the US was pressuring SWIFT to remove Russia from its membership. Uh, essentially, the organization swung all the way around. And because there's a competing organization to SWIFT that has since emerged out of China called uh, CIP, C-I-I-P-S, I can't recall what the uh, acronym stands for. But because there's a competing organization, the SWIFT organization actually not only didn't kick out Russia, they offered them a board seat. <laughs> and this happens at, at the same time. So uh, here, here's that clip from the New York Times. Ignoring direct pleas from the Obama administration, Europe's biggest economies have declared their desire to become founding members of a new Chinese-led Asian investment bank that the United States views as a rival to the World Bank and other institutions set up at the height of American power after World War II. The announcement on Tuesday by Germany, France, and Italy that they would follow Britain and join the Chinese-led venture delivered a strong rebuke to Washington from some of its closest allies. It also called into question whether the World Bank and International Monetary Fund, which grew out of the multinational conference in Bretton Woods, New Hampshire, in 1944 and established an economic pecking order that lasted 70 years, will find their influence diminished. Another country that announced their intention to join is a Luxembourg, actually. Very small, very wealthy, uh, you know, kind of uh, Swiss-like financial haven that's very, very quintessentially European, and they are also joining this investment bank. So the reason why this is relevant is explicitly because when you only have one option, right, when you only have one Bretton Woods type organization, then the barrier to replacing that, to getting 140 countries or however many on board with a new organization so that you can just be as functional and offer as many connections as the existing system is enormous. It's a huge, huge cost. And the only reason why this path is being gone down is because the U.S. government and the U.S. monetary policy has really abused this power for a long time. And it didn't actually happen until we started trying to kick people out. Because at the point that we started kicking people out, the people who still, like when we kicked out Iran, the countries that still wanted to do business with Iran created an alternative system so that they could do business with Iran. And that's a system that didn't exist previously. And it wouldn't have existed if we hadn't forced out, if the U.S. hadn't forced out Iran from the SWIFT program, which then necessitated the creation of this alternative system. And once you've got an alternative system, once you've you know, crossed that barrier, then it's very easy for other people to join it as well, because they don't have to create something from scratch and start all the way over. All they have to do is opt into another one. So, I mean, that's kind of the thing that I'm seeing here is that now we're starting to see kind of a pylon effect where because the, the bubble that it can only be the US dollar and it can only be the SWIFT interbank transfer system that are able to do these things, now there's competition. And if there's competition, then the US has to actually do a good job. Otherwise, they're going to get out competed. And I don't really think that there's even a possibility at this point that we can right the ship when it comes to the dollar. It seems like, again, so much work and so much momentum has gone into this that it really is just, it's just like a matter of course before we either go to like a dual system, right, where there are two reserve currencies because there are these two strong interbank systems able to provide that support. The real adverse scenario is if people decide to en masse abandon the US dollar because this other system is viewed as more equitable. I just threw a lot of words at you guys. Any place you want to um, jump in on that, any comments that you have, I, this has just been on my mind a lot and I wanted to throw it out there. Oh, it seems like that's the natural direction it's going to go. It's going to be like an evolutionary process. Political forces are strong, but what's stronger is these sort of like natural market forces or evolutionary forces. So people around the world are going to use whatever kind of currency they find most convenient, easiest, best, or what they like the best. That's kind of a hard ball to stop rolling, no matter what the political whims are. And, and I know the U.S. probably won't like it. They won't tolerate it. But maybe that's the inevitable direction that things are just moving in. You know, we've just talked about the dollar could not be the dominant currency anymore. But something that I've really been trying to wrap my head around, and I can't tell, is a question that you asked earlier in this conversation, Andreas, is, is it a good thing or a bad thing if this happens? And what, what type of impact would that have? When Nixon took us off the gold standard in 71, he said on TV that there wouldn't be any noticeable price difference so long as you weren't trying to travel outside of the country or trying to buy things that were imported. So the impact of a currency changing its value relative to other currencies isn't necessarily always felt by the people within the currency. The more you import from other countries, 
the larger the impact that will be felt. But given that the U.S. and most of the developed world has been in kind of a manufacturing pullback for a very long time, largely because of the imbalances caused by uh, the U.S. dollar, it really feels like even though it would be terrible and we'll have less purchasing power and all of that stuff, the dynamic of the country and the dynamic of the currency could actually be forced back into alignment with reality simply because we no longer have the ability to print money, pretend it's gold, and ignore reality. The real big issue right now is not about manufacturing. It's not about uh, trade balances, the difference between imports and exports. The real issue right now is a basic dichotomy between the desires of government and the desires of the people of a country. So right now, for example, if you're a saver in the United States and you have money um, saved, then you want that money to appreciate in value or at least maintain stability or find some way to generate some yield so that your investment increases over time or at least remains stable. The problem is that that money is being managed by your government and your government has a multi two-digit trillion dollar debt burden that it cannot possibly ever repay unless the underlying currency in which that debt is denominated is worthless. So the only way to repay the debt is to make the currency worthless. So now the government is at odds with the incentives and desires of the people. The government needs worthless currency because it has debt denominated in that currency, and the people need a currency that has worth because they're going to need that in order to buy things and in order to invest in the next generation. And this is not just happening in the US, this is happening across some 20 plus countries that are currently stuck at 0% interest rates on a race to the bottom on who will devalue the currency first. So the strategy by governments has been, we have this enormous debt burden. What we want to do is devalue the worth of our currency to reduce the debt burden while hoping that that will stimulate economic growth. And the way we do that is by forcing inflation and debasing the currency faster than our competitors. And the way we do that is by setting the interest rate to zero and printing more currency to debase it. Unfortunately, if the other party that's on the other side of this floating exchange rate is also doing that, then you don't move relative to them because they're also moving downhill, full pedal to the metal devaluation mode. And right now, the biggest economies in the world are all doing exactly that in this enormous race to devalue the currency. And the ultimate victims are the populations of these countries because what they're seeing is this enormous currency war going on, which creates extreme volatility, uncertainty for the future, and debases the investments and savings of everybody. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. This episode was sponsored by The Tokenly Project, FoldingCoin.net, and smvoice.info. Content for today's show is provided by Andreas M. Antonopoulos, Stephanie Murphy, and Adam B. Levine. Music for this episode was provided by Jared Rubens with the LTB theme and General Fuzz with his track Comfort Zone during the break. This episode was edited by Adam B. Levine. See you next time.